0: and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com
2: Bracey Hill is a lecturer in the history department and has a PhD in religion at Baylor University. He wrote a book called God, Nimrod, and the World, Exploring Christian Perspectives on Sport Hunting. And when I saw the book, I was like, dang, I need to have that book and need to read it. It is an academic treatise, essentially, on hunting and its influence and interaction and intersection with religion. And I think the, the most beautiful part about this treatise is that he asked both hunters and non-hunters, actually animal rightists, to contribute essays around ethics on hunting. I'll tell you right now that this is a book you want to read. It's a conversation you want to listen to. It's a conversation you want to share with everyone. It's not going to be the last time that we talk to Bracey. It's it's a phenomenal conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So there's a reason why... I started Blood Origins, and that reason is simple: is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting.
3: It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals.
0: How
2: do I start it, Brittany? My name, my name is, <laughs> Does My hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Rex, <laughs> you said something in the car to me You build up a – because I didn't Google who you were, all right? I, I bought your book. Oh, okay. Great. I didn't Google. You have this, like – yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's right here. See? I've got okay. it. It's right here. Um, but you build up this idea of, like, who this person looks like in your brain. And this is obviously an audio medium. It's not a visual medium. I can see you. You can see me. But the audience cannot see either of us. Right. You as visually are not someone that I would have pictured <laughs> to have written this book.
3: You get that a lot. Uh, you know, well, yeah, to a degree. Uh, I, I get, I, yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, I do, I do. I, I get, I get a lot of, I get a lot of flack, I get a lot of ribbing. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it, it is. I understand exactly what you're saying. You're reading people's voices on the page. Maybe even hear them, you know, on something like this, and then you're like, "Man, you know, they're uglier than I thought they were," or, <laughs>
2: <laughs> or have long hair. You know, um, yeah, long hair. Have yeah, I, yeah, long hair, and you've got uh, looks like a bunch of pelts behind you on some flags.
3: It's you know, I love it. It's an office. You gotta stake your little claim and 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 uh, try and find your place in, in the in the uh, academic world so this is my for lack of a better way of doing it it's just kind of what i'm rolling with right
2: now so 100% 100% bracy hill uh welcome to the blood origins podcast i'm excited for whatever rabbit trails we decide to uh, expose or <laughs> dive down or
3: Whatever this may turn into. Well, I, I'm uh, again, you know, before we jump into it. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. So, yeah,
2: let let it happen. So, Bracey, I, I guess based on what I see behind you, uh, it's it's probably a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And obviously, based on the book that you wrote, you're a hunter. I am a practitioner. Uh, you know how successful I Whoa, 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 whoa! You're you're a practitioner of what?
3: Well, I mean, in the sense of you know, of hunting. So I mean you could oh okay, you could okay. write a history of maritime history and never sail a ship, you know? Uh, so I am a participator, a practitioner. I practice, if you will. Again, with, you know, questionable success at times, but I am a I am a practitioner of sport hunting. Uh, someone who takes it seriously. isn't
2: isn't questionable success inherent to hunting?
3: You know, uh, you've heard the same thing I've probably heard since my childhood. If it wasn't hunting, it would be shooting, right? I mean, so... uh, Or killing. Or killing, yeah. So, uh, exactly. And it's that element of the unknown, I think, that draws many people into it. It's the pursuit, which is not necessarily the same thing as the taking of game. Uh, Yeah, and it's the pursuit that makes the... But the challenge, the joy, the frustration, the hey, hey. triumph—all uh, those things.
2: Brady, do you have an opinion of why then we are labelled as killers to the anti-hunting fraternity? Or you know, I wouldn't call even—I wouldn't call even non-hunters. They, I don't think they would define us that way. They may define us that way if they've been exposed to some sort of negative. In you know, piece of rhetoric or of content about hunting, but why do you think we have that persona about us? Oh, well, I
3: think it, it's, uh, it's what we do as humans, right? We simplify what we see as not being us. Whatever is other, we simplify it down. And the easiest way to, for people to simplify is to focus on what they do know. And ironically, we only help them in this. So Follow me on this. Uh, did you ever watch the movie Bambi?
2: Uh, I, I might have. I grew up in South Africa, so we didn't get a lot of like... We didn't have old yellow, but yeah, I remember Bambi. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't watch Bambi till
3: I was 40-something years old. Uh, because I, didn't, I wasn't reared on, on Disney films. But in Bambi, you never see the hunter. All you see are the effects of the hunter. You see the camp at the beginning... You see the smoke curling up from the valley. And the mother says something to the effect of, man has entered the forest. And then later on, Uh you see, you hear the shots. You hear the ricochets, which of course means that they're firing willy-nilly. You see the only Uh birds that are, the only animals that are killed, and that's some pheasants that are hit. They're hit, they fall, feathers fall. And then you see the fire Uh sweep through the forest. And then the dogs, which are animals but have been twisted to be humans, Humans, tools. You see the dogs, and of course, you see Bambi shot. Sorry, spoiler alert, people. Uh, But (laughs) you see Bambi shot, and then Bambi struggles on, etc. So you never actually see the pursuit, assuming that they were approach that they were poachers, which essentially is what Disney says is they're Uh germ, they're poachers. Uh, Uh That's what he implies. Uh So what people focus on is what they see, and what they see are men and women. Posing with dead animals. And what they see are men and women carrying weapons, whether they be bows, arrows. The
0: 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
3: Archie equipment or firearms of various types. And so they, I believe, the, the public, they, let's just say ignorant, but I think many times they're informed to a degree, but not sufficiently. They focus on that final. They focus on the blood, the hunter kneeling triumphantly over the animal were killers. Um hey, and ignorant of the frustrations, the pursuits, the days without seeing anything, the freezing your behind off or sweating it off or bloody shins or that's not part of the equation or part of what they know.
2: Does the does the fault fall on us though? Have we not done a good job of showcasing that? Have we done more of a job of focusing on us standing by animal?
3: So i take two things. Uh, the short answer is, I'm not saying that the fault lies with us, but I think that there is an element of, culpability is not the word I want, because that implies guilt, but there is an eh. element that for which we are responsible, that as a decreasing, already a minority, but a decreasing minority across the globe, uh, obviously, I deal mostly in North America, but nonetheless, that as a minority, we do a very poor job historically of presenting this thing, which for most people who participate in hunting year after year after year, not just, you know, going out and trying occasionally, that we do a bad job of presenting what we're doing. And uh-huh. I think that is inherent in the very practice Uh, how how does a a jogger explain to someone the thrill of running by oneself down the road? It's hard to do. And hunters do the same Mm. thing. That is, we go out a lot of times by ourselves, are only in cultural identified groups, most of the time male, more than 90% male generally. And we only perpetuate the culture by inoculating, passing it on to the males generally within our group, and, and everyone else is ignorant of it, except what we show them on Facebook, social media, uh, or the like, and that's all they're getting. Now, I know that there has been, and I am thrilled to see, uh, just like on here and, and a number of other media personalities who have really pushed the last decade to show more of the process. Hey, hey. Uh, and perhaps one of the greatest, in my opinion, uh, one of the greatest moves is for more and more media personalities to show not getting something in the end. And yeah. uh, and I'll admit that what, that was one of the things that drew me to uh, Steven Ranella's productions. Sure, is that of course. More than once he went out, he comes out, comes back, got nothing, you know? Yep. And that pursuit, I think, is poorly represented to the populace. Now, historically speaking, hunters have always been, um, to, be, to be honest, I mean, hunters have been, uh, hunting has been a process for moving people towards males, moving towards martial ability. You used weapons that you used in war. There has been the argument, by critics in particular, that hunting is a process of desynthesizing its practitioners to the violence of blood sport, and therefore it made them good soldiers. Uh, Do with it what you will, but it's not uncommon if we look at ancient history through the medieval history and early modern history that that was the case. And of course, only a few people had access to land, to animals. And in most cases, they were the martial classes, the lords, the gentry, those who would serve in those capacities. Uh, and so hunting has been associated with that idea of the kill. But the, we know there's so much more. Uh, and if we look at medieval literature about hunting, a lot of it is the pursuit of the animal in this kind of romantic age with very thin, thinly... Uh, uh, the analogies in regards to love and the pursuit of love, they're fairly obvious. And so one would, would not say, I think, in most cases, that love is about sex. Love's about more than just that.
2: Uh-huh.
3: It's about uh-huh. the ongoing pursuit, the ongoing relationship.
2: But, yeah, dare der- Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I was just saying... It- I, I think you're right, and I would I, I agree with most of what you said, but what about the idea of, I know you mentioned desensitization to blood sport and violence and whatnot. But what about the counter? which is actually not a part of a class-based hunting system, but rather is more of you being connected to, you know, Gaia herself, being connected to the cycle of life that inherently has death a part of it. That is more a traditional way of life, living off the land, which probably, you know, represents the vast majority of rural communities. You know, you're a history professor. Yeah. Hundreds of years passed, um, That, again, may not have gotten the light sh- shun on it. Shun on it? Shined on it? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, again, to this whole idea, like, we've got this perception of who we are. Hunting is a perception based on literature of, you know, this class-based system in the UK and dukes and lords being able to participate in hunting, but there's this very, very large component of the landscape of the populace of history. Yeah. And I'm not a history professor, but tied to traditions and tied to living off the land and and hunting is inherently a threat through all that. Absolutely.
3: Um, Well... Uh, so, if we step back and we say, why aren't farmers associated with being killers? So okay. So, husbandmen, the old term, right? The people who fear. Right, husbandry that, of the animals, yeah. yeah. Uh, many a farmer, a sheep farmer, goat farmer, etc., is going to kill far more animals, depend, especially in today's kind of like a field, to, uh, field to table kind of stuff where they're supplying it, than I'm going to kill in a year, you know, of hunting. We just have a tendency to focus, I think, particularly on hunting because of that culmination as the end of it. And much of domestication of animals, they're reared or raised to die. Even, I mean, you got a rooster, right? The rooster does his job. Maybe otherwise it's meant for the pot. Even the old chicken that does her job for years of the... She very well at the end may end up in a pressure cooker. Inevitably, the mm-hmm. animal in domestication is also going to find its end and will be killed. And but we don't focus on that in most cases. We focus on the farmer, uh, whether medieval farmer or the current uh, you know farmer today. And of course, we don't even think about industrialized farming because industrialized farming is just simply raising things that die in horrific environments. Uh, And I think that the modern hunter in particular is, I would argue, uh, simply a caricature to most people. And that the ignorance of the cycle of life, the importance of participation in it, uh, the relationship to the earth, the recognition that the modern hunter in particular, since the late 19th century and the conservation impulse, is responsible and is invested in the diversity of animal life, uh, albeit the ones we want to pursue more than others, but nonetheless, and in the preservation of animal habitats. And it's so much more about life than it is death, (laughs) but that's missing. uh, And that, in theory, the modern hunter of the last two centuries is very much aware of the cycles of life, participates in life and death, and in some ways, lives a more, I'm going to throw it out there, a more authentic life because he or she is
2: far more aware of death. No, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, Brady, we're 15 minutes into this podcast. Give a a bit of background. People are like, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) Uh, And why is Robbie talking to him? Give a little background to who you are, who you work for, what you do. Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Bracey Hill. I uh, uh, am a history professor. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer at a university in Texas at Baylor University. I uh, started out life uh, interested in just history. That was my kind of my thing uh, after I gave up on chemistry. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ended up uh, becoming a, a, a librarian. Yeah, a very sexy career. And then a school teacher for years. I taught uh, junior high and high school uh, in Indiana. And uh, I did a master's uh, at a, a great university up there, a place called Notre Dame. And, and, and just kind of, uh, I ended up, things didn't go as I had planned. I, my academic journey just didn't roll the way I kind of expected it to. And life ended up taking me through a number of paths. And while I was a school teacher... I had uh, I, gone a little hunting uh, as a young person. It was part of my family's culture, but because of uh, the the fact that my parents moved frequently, we never, and we were very poor, to be honest. I mean, when I mean poor, I mean poor. Uh, uh-huh. We never had access to hunting. Uh, we fished because fishing was democratic. There were piers, uh-huh. there were jetties. You could do that kind of thing. But as a teacher, I ended up having uh, one of my colleagues invite me to go hunting with the tenth grade boys, and this was something he had instituted. Uh, take to he doesn't anymore. Had you do it anymore. hunted
2: at this point?
3: I had done a little bit. I mean, I killed a few deer when I was okay. in college. Uh okay. You know, I, I, you know, I that probably had been it. I killed a few deer. Um, uh-huh. And I hunted in Missouri as a as a as a young man uh, with my father a junior in high school and, and in college. So uh, I went out with them. Had a grand time, ended up killing a, a large Indiana doe in front of all these 10th grade boys. There was a whole story to it, but I, it, it, like it struck a chord, and, and, and I, I just couldn't stop. So, anyway you know, I went on to go eventually get a PhD. I uh, studied the history of religion, in particular, ended up being a, a British historian, working on British topic matters. And while I was working on my dissertation, I got bored with my subject matter. And I started thinking about what I could do other than, than British studies uh, and looking yeah. at religion. And the thing I loved to do was was hunting and be outdoors. And I took every chance I could. And I was only able to do it because of the kindness of others. Because I, I'm not affluent. Um, I didn't have access to land. And Texas is some 97 to 98% privately owned. So if you don't have mm-hmm. access to land or access to money to lease land, you're out of luck. Uh, Or almost, there is some public land that's available, but it's, it's not nearby. Uh, it's it's in the West, the Southwest, et cetera. So out of the graciousness of some people, I just met one of them, a farmer who had plenty of of deer that were preying on his corn, I had access to it. And so when I could, I'd roll out of school, roll to the field and kill as many white tailed deer as I could legally. And we filled the Mm -hmm. freezer and made graduate life uh, happy. So while working on my graduate work uh, and finishing up, I thought, you know, this would be kind of a fun project. Why don't I think of and put into words my concerns about being uh, an academic who was clearly on the outsides of academic world, right? Because, I mean, it's not that many people I met who were hunting in the academy. And I wasn't necessarily welcome to talk about well, that especially kind Especially of in,
2: stuff. like, the history department and religion department and English department. They're not very well known for... No hunting prowesses, right?
3: No, and and that kind of stuff was, I mean, it's a story I tell about I was walking across campus with my mentor who was a professor at the University of Stirling in Scotland. And he was here, and and I traveled back and forth, and we worked this relationship out as we worked on my dissertation. And we were walking across campus, and I said, I was telling him a story that my wife and I had been out hunting this previous weekend. Now, my wife had killed her first deer. Now, my wife's from Alaska. So, Eh. hunting culture was not foreign to her. It wasn't something she participated in but okay. this farmer had made land available to us and we began to enjoy it. So she'd been out, she killed a white winged dove and you know, I've proud of her, I had a picture of her and I told my, my friend and my mentor, I said, his name was Dr. David Bebbington. I said, you know, that she had killed this, this, this bird and he stops from the middle of campus. He stops and he looks at me and he goes, that's just so French. And, for him, this behavior was un- <laughs> un- uncivilized. It's not what academic people do. And while he wasn't right. going to judge me, he did judge me immediately. And in Dang. that moment, physically recoiling from me, um, although we just had lunch and we would eaten meat, you know, he, he, it just it didn't fit within this arena. And right. so I started th- thinking about it, talking about it, or reading about it when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, teaching classes or research <laughs> And after 10 years, I finally had put together a project and, and it, it, I, I shopped it around. What I realized is not everybody wanted to hear what I had to say. They wanted to hear what lots of people had to say. And so I yeah. tried to put together a book of essayists. Most of them who had never written about hunting or ethics or religion, yet were were people who asserted a faith that they participated in a faith environment of some sort. Uh, broadly Christianity, but we're also practitioners in most cases. And I put together a book. Eventually, brought a co-editor on, and the book essentially was my baby, my 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 the the, the product of my heart, not so much my mind, but it was my mind as well. And it's called God Never Out in the World, and it explores from lots of different perspectives the validity questions of validity or the ethics of sport hunting, so particularly sport hunting. I mean, not talking about survival, but sport hunting in the modern world, where it is an elective activity, but one uh, that is full of potential joy, potential trauma and tragedy, uh, one that could be seen as being a valid um, a, a behavior of, of, of excellence in a world in which the creator has granted us this world, or one that mm-hmm. could be seen that is without redemption that is some type of behavior that should be ceased immediately so i had critics and proponents and i brought them all in and some 24 essayists and kind of got them to to talk through me as i worked them through their essays and and this is this is the thing that i it it, again it's my baby it's the product of my heart i'll go back to doing british history and other things later on but this is that that's that's it so that's what i do i'm a history professor I talk about ethics. I teach classes on the history of hunting uh, in America, uh, looking at wildlife and nature and how humans have arrived here and dealt with the environment, identified as nature, wild, etc., uh, and how that's even played out globally.
2: Yeah, I definitely need a education on ethics. I think the hunting community at large <laughs> probably needs an education on ethics because I'm not uh, I'm not very well versed in the theology of ethics and so i don't know the true roots of ethics and the the two you know i guess foundational types of ethics kind of thing because but and the reason i say it because a lot of people in our community will say oh that's that's ethically not right yeah and i'm like i've been called out on on social media for saying that and so now i know that it's not an ethics it's not a question of ethics then it's just a question of personal preference um and the ethics part has got nothing to do with it actually at the end of the day um but no to to, to you to god no in the world that's the book that you read that's the book that i bought um uh, it's an academic you know sojourn of 24 essays as you say um and it says exploring christian perspectives on sports hunting do you think if you weren't at a a very Christian related school, Bailey University, that you would still have sort of, and maybe this is a dumb question because you're a religion, prof- you've got a PhD in religion, that you would have weaved religion into a book like this? Um, I mean, possibly. The reason I
3: say that is because I didn't necessarily receive any support from my apartment that i was in at the time it was really it was really just a a product of my heart i wanted to do something i wanted to be honest i didn't have the answers i wanted to i like the word you were you described a sojourn it it, i wanted to go through the journey of (laughs) actually forcing myself to throw some stuff out there see what stuck see if i could be consistent here's what i found and it's not inconsistent with some studies that are out there one is we talked about we have a shrinking minority of people who are participating in hunting across the globe in north america in particular two although the last two years have been weird increasingly that small minority if you if you ask them they identify as being no i'm putting big air quotes here religious (laughs) they identify Eh. as being religious now The numbers, however, particularly the last couple of years, have argued that people are becoming less institution-oriented in their religious behavior. So, would you have people who who maintain a religious perspective, but don't do it in regards to a particular church, synagogue, mosque, etc. And there is a gradual, I think, distrust of institutions, and to be honest, COVID restrictions pull people out of that regular gatherings and now they're like i don't need to go back yet they still maintain a kind of orientation or cultural identity so the group is getting smaller but they are in general more quote-unquote religious now many identify as spiritual etc the question though that i struggled with was if being religious whatever that happens to be and i identified as being that was a core part of my identity did my behavior and the thing that I love almost the most, hunting, reflect that perspective that was supposed to be kind of the ultimate concern of my life? I hope that makes sense. So if I'm truly, re- if I've got these ideas about what the meaning of life is and why I'm here and Mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to be doing, and this is the causation and the focus of the world around me, shouldn't my hunting behavior and my ethic and my pursuit reflect those same core values? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's sort of
3: interwoven with it, right? Exactly. So what I found out was when I talked to other people who identified as being religious and as hunters, there was a complete disconnect. No connection. I hunt. Just like I play football or watch football or do this and, I and then I go to church or I talk yep. about God or we we pray before dinner, even if we don't go to church, because that's what we are. We believe there's a God. Maybe this is creation. However, we talk about it, but we see it as a blessing, et cetera. And there was a complete disconnect. So the questions hey. I had weren't necessarily tied to my institutional position or to my location. They were questions that, were, that had to do with who I was and my hope that I would be consistent. Now, I'm a very inconsistent person, but, uh, but I, I, I believe that being consistent is something I should be. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh-huh. It's just like, I, I, I know I should eat healthy and drink less. That doesn't mean I don't, but you know I do. You know. It's Tracy, just what it is. What you're saying is you're consistent at being inconsistent. That is absolutely true. <laughs> but so that pursuit, though, actually because it's like hunting and that is that academic pursuit for trying to come up with an answer was something i think that i would have done elsewhere maybe but there were tools that were available to me if nothing else i was able to write people and say hey look i'm this person at this institution and that facilitated conversations um but i don't know i think i would have the question would have been there whether or not this product would have resulted from it in my life so yeah um and the only reason I teach history classes about hunting is the chair of my department, the former chair of my department, was intrigued by it. A British historian, he knew people who, you know, rode the hounds and did all those types of things in the UK, and he saw a value in it that wasn't being done anywhere else, as he knew, in the Damn. United States. And so he pushed me in that direction to nice to follow through.
2: Well, it certainly is. Uh... There's some, and I want to get into a little bit of the yeah. the meat of some of these chapters, um, but again, just some context. When you reached out to the people to to contribute essays to this piece, were they all hunters that you reached out to? Um, no, so I wanted to have at least two different, like a pro
3: and a and a, and a negative side. Okay. So I, I needed it to be a conversation, not just simply a uh, trying to think of an appropriate term. I didn't want it to be a bunch of people patting each other on the back saying, Hey, look at us. We're, we're, 100%. we're hunters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wanted there to be a criticism that was inherent. My co-editor that I brought on later on in the process was, was against hunting or at least as he saw it being done. And so that was ideas to get the opposing voice. And, uh, he brought in a friend of his to write the main, uh, the main essay that is counter hunting. And, uh, So I didn't want it to be something like that. But then I just had to go look for people who I thought might be able to write an essay. Now, some were in the academy, some I bumped into. You're at conferences around the world and you're talking to people and they mention something about duck hunting. You're like, whoa, hang on. You're an academic and you do this and suddenly the conversation begins. And not surprisingly, right? You know, like the, 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 the layers of the onion begin to peel back and you begin to see what really gives them joy, in addition, perhaps, to their academic exercises or getting a paycheck. But uh, they, I met people, but then I just hunted people out, uh, cold called them. Um, I was looking also because it ended up being a, a, a religion and, and sports series. I tried mm-hmm. to identify some athletes uh, who could speak to it, trying to make the comparison between sports, etc. But I was also looking for those who identified, at least somewhat publicly, with a kind of faith. Uh, I would call it confession or a public side and I you know I tried to contact people who did not participate Uh, you know the football player Peyton Manning I called, called the Colts at that point in time like hey you know I understand Peyton Manning Clay. give me an essay yeah nothing you know I contacted his <laughs> he, contacted his center Jeff Saturday who now is coaching the Colts uh, yeah. and he also was a hunter and a professed christian. Um at least I got a I got a response of I'm a little too busy, can't do that. But I I exactly. you know, people like Jace Robertson at that point in time was riding the wave of that duck dynasty. Um he didn't <laughs> have time to write the essay, so we we worked it out together between the two of us. Um and uh and we did this on a couple of other essays where it's kind of a they they gave me the, the words, and I put it into a coherent, uh, coherent statement, found academics who would write to it, found academics who didn't hunt. Perhaps one of the most interesting essays is by the late Stephen Webb, and he writes a history uh, of a historic Christian from the, from the early centuries of Christendom, and what's intriguing was Stephen Webb was an animal rights uh, ethicist who was radically against hunting. And for that matter, he was a vegetarian who late in his life, and he did die, unfortunately, of suicide uh, after the book came out, or just as it was coming out, um, who, who was was dealing with issues and broadening his horizons and became open to it. And so yeah. he ended up writing an essay, and in the process of writing the essay, came to his own new conclusions about at least the validity also. Of, of the activity within his ethical... Uh,
2: arena that he was willing to accept it uh-huh. mm-hmm. how many of you essayists had something like that happen to them they were from the non-hunting anti-hunting side that they were like hmm there may be something else here there were a
3: couple who were some of whom are actually fellows for the the oxford center for animal ethics so andrew Lindsay's animal rights organization there at oxford who were willing to participate in the project who didn't fully buy into it, but who had some, it seemed, at least from my communication and also in the essay I got from them, there was some movement towards flying and validity in it. Um, of mm-hmm. at least arguing that they could envision that perhaps there could be an ethical way that this could be done. Maybe not necessarily that most people were doing it, but they could envision potentially an ethical way of doing it. And which was a movement away from their original point because they had never been asked to think about it yeah 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 uh, and they'd never been at it was just they assumed hunting bad animal rights good and i am being a bit simplistic but along those lines and had never grappled with it <laughs> as Stephen webb described it he sat on a fence post and he was trying to figure out where exactly he was one of the essayists is a pacifist and i was aware of him pacifist and a philosopher and from a pacifist tradition in Christianity. And I, how can you hunt? How could you hunt? And yeah. he works his way through it. And he in particular is a bow hunter. So not using a firearm, but he's willing to use archery equipment.
2: Is that this W. E. Nunnally essay? Which one's that? Oh Nunnally. Is not, that the W. N- e. Nunnally? Nunnally is a hardcore hunter. Uh I gotta tell okay, you. Okay, so let's let's let me ask this because I want to just sort of for the remaining whatever minutes we we're going to talk to I want to talk I want to get your opinion and your thoughts on some of these essays because the t- the the titles are what what sell hey. this and you know hopefully we, we we get at least two people buying the book after this <laughs> podcast <you know? laughs> I
3: love writing titles by the way just that so, way I love writing titles so
2: yeah well the titles are amazing the titles are amazing so let's go to the first one which is your um your chapter, chapter 9, which uh-huh. is what the one that you recommended I read, which is a dying legacy, question mark. A century of hunting stories of Texas families. Why did you put a question mark in there? Okay. Well, to be honest, it... My is it argu- dying? Is the storytelling dying? My argument is hunting is, yes, dying? it is.
3: But by simply reporting and talking about what's going on, my hope is that I can rejuvenate it. It's, it's, it's one of the, you're looking at it, it it seems to be passing away, it seems to be diminishing, if one looks at numbers, etc. But might I not, by talking about it, propel some folks to pick it up? That's my hope, and that's the question mark. But I'll leave it open. So yeah, so this was a, uh, I went around to a number of families I identified from different ethnic backgrounds, different locations within Texas, I wanted to keep it within a kind of a, a window. Uh, and then wanted to interview multiple generations and talk to them about their their tradition. What I found was, in many cases, at least the hunting within the family is changing if it's not diminishing. Uh, where the last generation, it's not how Damn. they identify as the core of their identity. They do it occasionally. They do it with dad. They do it with grandpa. Um, and... I don't know what the future is going to be like. And many of them expressed that in in the interviews that I did with them. I, I did it. Dad took me. It was a key part of who I was. But I don't know. I, I want it to be a part of our story in the next generations. But I don't know. And I wanted them to tell the stories, which I recorded and are filed in the um, the, the Baylor Oral History Institute here. But then I wanted to analyze and report to the reader kind of what they said, how they spoke generally, do some analysis, and pull out some summary from it.
2: Yeah, I, was, uh, I, I quite enjoyed, you know, again, reading all of the different diversities, backgrounds, ethnicities uh, from West to East in Texas. Um, Chapter five, the title is From Field Sports to Blood Sports. Changing Perspectives. I'm assuming, uh, Changing Perspectives in Britain on Hunting, 1800 to 2000. So, this was, go ahead, I'm sorry. Is that a generalization? Is that a generalization across the board? Again, yeah. I haven't read the chapter. I'm just going off the title here. So, this um, is a this is an, this is an example. This sounds is a historian. Like
3: Unfortunately, uh, Professor Dury died uh, before the book came out, and... Uh, but he, dude, what's up with people dying know. and uh, <laughs> writing uh, in your uh, book? Uh, he, yeah, he passed away. He was a professor at the University of Sterling in Scotland. Okay, and he had written a number of books on things like uh, travel. He Interesting travel historian, and uh, but I had heard through the grapevine that he was a very active sportsman, and he left at the opportunity to write a history and. In particular, kind of sum up, uh, if you will, the two, basically the Victorian age and then the 20th century in, in the UK and the role of hunting. We're giving some comment on the role of religion. Now, as he notes, religion, ironically, until the last 50 years, really hasn't played a part in the discussion. But now it really does, as we see religion and, and um, uh, the idea of animal rights and animal ethics have come together many times in opposition to sport hunting, leading to the outlawing of all types of behavior in the UK. It's a really good piece. And again, it's kind of unfortunate that the author has passed. But Professor Dury just goes through and tries to summarize, and I think it's particularly useful for American audiences who read this, because they don't know anything about British or Uh UK hunting, South South, uh, African hunting, and there's some similarities there and it's a different world we we just live in a radically different world in north america both united states and canada versus both the long traditions that have existed in these other locations but also increasing resistance to the to the continuation of the sport and the cultural behaviors in those locations uh and former commonwealth nations and the (laughs) the like and so in some ways duri's chapter is both very informative he goes through and walks his way through the victorian age and how in fact it has changed and he would argue obviously he's not here to do it anymore but that the future is is rough the future is not all that positive (laughs) for hunting in the uk in particular and he continued to do it until the last days he possibly could physically he would send me pictures of him and his hunting mates and their dogs as they would go out shooting uh, he would remark about the oddity of American hunting, uh, as we would talk about all the types of animals. I'm like, well, I killed this, I killed this, I got this, I saw this. And he didn't have that variety in Britain and in Scotland in particular to hunt. <laughs> but nonetheless, we shared across the Atlantic a similar passion.
2: And, uh, yeah. Did he did he believe that killing for sport was the, is, was the result of... Was the reason for the the rough times ahead, or the changing perspectives? Because in the big be- in the beginning of the chapter, it says that the killing for sport as opposed to for subsistence of animals or birds or fish could be morally wrong. Seems to have been an issue for the British that emerged only later in Victorian period. Until then, field sports in Britain were largely unchallenged and unchallengeable.
3: Yeah, I think his his assertion is that by the time we get to the end of the twentieth century, field sports will continue he foresaw that they would continue in the uk but basically it would be mostly shooting birds uh that there would be (laughs) no he did not see a change in the policy on the use uh, of dogs uh, the pursuit of foxes that that would return uh that that would be made legal again and so what he saw was that the traditional forms of sport hunting in the the united kingdom and britain that emerged during the 1700s, particularly like riding the hounds and and the pursuit of foxes, which was a mechanism for continuing to hunt when there weren't any more deer or there weren't any more forests, uh, that that which had become a symbol of the British gentry and of participation in field sports, that it was gone, that that era had been lost. And what was left was... You're still going to have to have the financial challenges of you have to have gamekeepers. You've got to raising pheasants, and you go for shoots. And yeah, you still raise your dogs, your sporting dogs, but that may remain. But the other elements that had long been a part of the British tradition that had existed still at the very beginning of the Victorian era, those were passed, and it was unlikely due to access (laughs) to to lands, but also the general tenor of the public. In Britain, the political tenor as well, that it probably would never return to what it was.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right, tell me about Chapter 12, Killing and the Kingdom, a case against sport hunting. And I want to read the, the beginning of this because it almost like threw a wrench in my psyche because... Again, I'll just read and then I'll tell you what the range should throw. So in this chapter, I offer a moral case against sport hunting. The case is intended primarily to show that Christian theology has ample resources for offering a moral prohibition against sport hunting. But as will become evident, the case begins by arguing for something much broader, namely that Christian theology has ample resources for offering a prima, a, a prima facie, a moral, I don't actually know what that means. Uh, prima facie moral prohibition against killing animals in general. Uh, the case offered here against sport hunting is then a straightforward application of the broader moral case against killing animals. What is prima facie moral prohibition, Bracey?
3: Like from the beginning. Uh, so okay. that that Christian theology from it from its very beginning, from from the bases the foundations of its uh, its existence its its theological and, and philosophical foundations. Is against the killing of animals.
2: Okay, well, again, here's the wrench in my brain, right? So, and it's all it all happens in Genesis, in which you've got the you know God, the Creator, giving us dominion, dominion specifically over all living creatures and beings, um, and then once you know out of the Garden of Eden, and once sin has entered the world. Animal sacrifice is very much a part of Christian theology. Um, It's very much a part of ingrained in society. How is that a moral? How is then Christianity? Christian theology. How how is a moral? How is there a prohibition against killing animals from that start? So and the, maybe we don't have enough time to explore no, 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 this topic, but it was just I, like a holy smokes,
3: <laughs> literally, uh, because the yeah. whole, well, the holy smoke many times would have been the smoke coming off of a sacrifice offered to Yahweh, uh, right, or something along those lines. But nonetheless, so so in short, and and, and I, uh, I, I, I'm assuming Sean over,
2: Graves is not a hunter.
3: He is not, and he is the okay. He's a member of Lindsay's Oxford group, uh, okay, and so he, there's a close association there. And if you look at the sources that he uses, like his footnotes, they are pulled almost from almost completely from literature or pieces written by fellows of the Oxford group for the for animal welfare and and uh, the Center for I can think about animal. Uh, animals. So not surprising. That's what we do, right? You end up, it's (laughs) not surprising, you end up using the sources that support the argument you're going to work with. So the short version of this goes something like this. Um, And it basically says, Christianity offers hope and a projection for the future. It is not a religion or a worldview that embraces the continuation of the status quo. What it does is it calls humanity to be radically different than it was before. Now, in theory, it also offers the, the tools, the mechanisms, the grace to go ahead and be different, whether through a kind of personal salvation or some type of enduring and constant grace offered through a sacramental church or something along those lines. So what we're called to be is different, not like we used to be. And if we're called to be different, where does that different be? Well, it should be in relationship to each other. I think that's generally assumed as Christianity is generally deemed an ethical religion, like Judaism, an ethical religion, how we deal with other humans. But the assumption many times then is also that we're called to bring about the king, kind of this lingo, the kingdom of God on the earth, and that we can do it. Now, we may not be able to do it in and of ourselves, but we're called to do it. We're shown that there's a a different horizon that we can pursue than that which we had before. And we're given the power, the energy, the grace, the mercy to pursue that new horizon. It's an optimistic view, in so much as it assumes that humans can do this with grace, mercy, etc. And sacramental gifts or the church active in our lives and those kind of things, the spirit of God, whatever the language is of that kind of more optimistic view. Thus it is fancy word, Eschatological, which means it doesn't have to do with poop. You hear the scat in there, but it's not. Eschatological <laughs> has to do with the future or the end times. But this approach assumes then that we can transform the world back to what it should have been. So you mentioned like the garden and this idea of living in a. Yeah,
2: so that's where he's couching it all, right? Is in the garden, that there was no death in the garden. Right, and that we're
3: returning to something like that, and if we look in the prophetic literature in the Hebrew Bible, to a degree somewhere in the New Testament, you get this idea of the lamb laying down with the lion, and this idea that we can live in unity with nature again, not in a predatorial fashion, and a rejection of what Andrew Lindsay at Oxford has jokingly called the predatorial Jesus, that you have somehow this God that is a predator and, you know, And it's a mocking, intentionally mocking kind of approach. So what you see in Graves' essay is a very kind of a long argument for that, pulling from various resources within the Christian tradition, some hymns. The argument is, if you sing these hymns, don't you you mean them? Isn't that a declaration that all creatures of our God, great and small, we can live together in this kind of vision? And aren't we called to be better than we were? better than we have been and to transform the world into that which God desires because God is working within us in our world. Not everybody is so optimistic as you can all imagine. And some people. Yeah, it's a hell of an input. It's a hell of an opinion. It is. Cheap as creeps. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is. I would argue, that's the basis of most Christian theological, Christian, ethical arguments against sport hunting. And that is <laughs> that hunting is a perpetuation of the violence that comes out of the garden. You say, but didn't God essentially with Noah facilitate a method for the acquisition of, of forgiveness through animal sacrifice? Did not God provide for Adam and Eve after their hubristic Sin of placing hey, themselves hey. equal got animal skins to cover their nakedness. That meant that presumably hey, an hey. animal died, and God was the one that that well, human sin may have Brought caused that to them. Yep. God facilitated it by providing another creature which was good for the good then of humanity. But we don't have to live that way, is the argument. We can live better than that. We can be better than that. Now. Hey, hey. Critics of that position will argue, well, we, we live in a system, and if we truly believe that we can look at the world around us and see truth with a capital T, natural theology is a way of arguing this, or one could even go all transcendental, right? And you read Thoreau or the like from the 19th century. The argument is somehow nature tells us how we should be in our best. It's hard to pull away from a predatorial world as being something that is ordered properly, it may not be nice, but at least it is, the, it is the order which has been given to us for this time being. And maybe there's a better world, but we can't do it in and of ourselves. It's going to require God breaking into a, and creating essentially yet another creation through us. We have the promise of yeah. that, yet what we're stuck in is something else, and we need to live and be the best we can, realizing we'll always fail but seek forgiveness. And I think most Christian systems kind of work that system. And that animals are good, are part of creation, are a product of God's imagination, and we're part of that as well, but that animals are here in some ways to help us. Animals, however, also are our responsibility. In so much as you use the word dominion, another way to say it is stewardship, um, and that what we need to recognize is the moral integrity the the value that being a creation of god has and animals are that so don't treat them like trash yeah yeah whether they
2: no, it's a fascinating chapter and i really uh, it's one these are the chapters that i i plan to read i just didn't have time to read but even just like flipping through it you know it talks about arguments and there's a premise so premise one killing animal imposes a serious harm upon those animals Premise two, it's morally wrong for us to impose serious harm upon animals without strong moral justification for doing so. Therefore, the conclusion, therefore, it is morally morally wrong for us to kill animals without strong moral justification for doing so. Interesting. Two more chapters that I'm interested in. Hold on, I've got a tickle in my throat. Oh, boy. Chapter 17. This is the one that actually the, the next two but this is one that was um was a really good one uh let me ask this question theodore vitali st louis university hunter i assume yes yes so chapter 17 the the title of the chapter says killing what you love a reflection on fair chase hunting and it starts with a, a phenomenally op- uh, a phenomenal open line which is one of the great paradoxes of hunting, is the hunter's desire to kill an animal that he or she purports to love. It is the paradox of paradoxes. Actually, I'll, I'll add: there's probably another one, which is how can you kill? How could killing animals actually increase their population? Yeah, that's a biological paradox, not a theological one, which you know it ties in here. Uh, it is the thing. Like, right. how do you love something? And kill it at the same time. And then here's the other challenge. How do you
3: express that to someone who has not experienced that? That's what needs a challenge. I think that for the... You know, there's a number of studies that are out there that particularly came out in the mid-1980s that looked at the stages of hunters' lives. So, you know, basically they start out, they're initiated, they're in their teens and 20s, they'll kill anything that moves. And then they get to the point where they... They don't need to do that anymore, and they move to, in their 30s many times, a pursuit of trophies. And then eventually, if they still can, and this kind of goes to Nunnally's chapter, you seek excellence in yourself in the pursuit of the thing that you see as being good. And so it's the process that literally is kind of bettering you while you participate in a rewarding process that feeds both your heart, your soul, and your stomach. And then you get to that stage where you just don't need to kill anymore. But that doesn't mean you don't still love both the hunt and the animal, uh, every one of those stages. Now, I do think that many times in the early stages, the enthusiasm of the pursuit and the lack of maturity just because of the person and their age and experience doesn't, they don't think that they love the animal. I remember having a conversation with a gentleman. And he still hunted. He was he's a few years my senior. And he made this interesting statement. And it's gonna sound weird to non-hunters who prep short yet, but he argued, I no longer hate them anymore. And I was taken aback by it. But he had gone through this type of, I want to take them, I want to take them, it was the pursuit, so much so that they became the opponent in a game. Huh. He now had reached the stage of maturity. He hunted because he found other things of merit in it, and he loved the animal. And what Batali, who, by the way, was the ethicist for the Boone and Crockett Club for some time, for many years, um, and, of course, a professor, a philosophy professor at St. Louis University, puts forward is an argument, an ethic, if you will, that tries to express to a reader who may not actually have ever hunted this paradox. How do I love the animal <laughs> I pursue, the animal I'm willing to kill? And how does that play out, not only in the hunt, sometimes when I choose not to kill, I could, but I don't. But also that I seek their welfare. How is it that you can talk to a deer hunter who says, are deer absolutely beautiful? Aren't they gorgeous? And they're standing there or sitting there, you know, in March or April watching the deer eating in the, the mature wheat fields or doing like, and can truly see the beauty in the animal, yet come October or November, is willing, more than willing, to take the life of that very same deer. How can they recognize the beauty, yet bring about the destruction? And what I would argue is that's what makes hunting far more complex than most people recognize it is from the outside. It's a true paradox. Uh-huh. Um, with uh-huh. various stages, much like love between
2: People goes through its various stages. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think I need to speak to that guy. I, I want to have that would be a hell of a podcast. Um, let me talk about this last chapter. I want to hear about. Uh, we've mentioned Nunnally a couple of times. Uh, he had a couple of chapters in here, didn't he? Uh,
3: his or just his one. big one's the last one, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. On the last. One.
2: So the big one is is the the chapter title is bow hunting. As an act of worship, with all your might, as unto the Lord, and to the glory of God. And without me saying anything about the next thing, a lot of people listening to this goes, Dan, that sounds like a bow hunter." <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, really top, you know, the the guys that are in it for bow hunting, like they take it like that. That, that there's nothing else. It is bow hunting, or 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 it right? You're giving it up. And the way that this starts, the somewhat unusual title of this chapter reflects the intersection of two journeys in my life, a tale that I will recount herein. The first journey was my transformation from a casual, note the adjective that he put there, casual firearms hunter to a dedicated bow hunter. Not that you could ever be a dedicated firearms (laughs) hunter. (laughs) Bygones, right? Bygones. Um, It's his entitlement, being the the author of this chapter. The second journey entailed the process of discovery that led me to the conclusion that bow hunting, like all other aspects of my life, could be pursued as an act of worship.
3: Amazing. So, not only was my Hebrew professor years ago, and uh, he was... Always an athlete. Well, you know, he always played softball leagues, etc. And he was a man who brought, not surprising to you perhaps, from just looking at the title, a man who brought an amazing amount of energy and focus to everything he did. He was like a, just a bundle of energy. And, and the essay really gets at what he wants to say. And that is, of course, first off, the first thing he wants to say is bow hunting is better than gun hunting. But the second thing he wants to say... <laughs> Is that we are called to be, as he sees it, to be all that we can be. Yeah, I know it's a slogan for a military group. But the argument he says is that we should do everything with all our might. We should follow God with all our might. We should love with all our might. But that means also you shouldn't be a slob about the thing. If you think it has value for him, hunting does. And he describes its value in stories, but also from biblical perspectives that we should do it with all our might this shouldn't be something that should be slapdash, that should be halfway done if we truly believe these are god's creatures and so are we that we're participating in an acceptable behavior that this somehow can bring glory to god by us being the best that we can be then get out get your body in shape for bow season get out and shoot your bow don't go out there thinking, well, I 40 yards is my limit. I, I'm good to go. And I pulled it two or three times. I think my pins are on. Go out there and you practice and you practice and you practice and you practice. And then you do it. You do it and you do it with all your might, with all your strength. Because hey. when you're doing it, you're celebrating. Basically, you're celebrating the strength that God has given you. And you're not doing it. Well, ha- he wouldn't say this. I will half-assed. You're doing it with all that right. you have. And in doing that, yep. that is an act of giving worship to God, a thankfulness for both the fruit of of nature, but also for the strength that we have in this day. Because it's going to go away eventually. This is the best I can give right now, and I'm thankful for it. It's interesting. I, I chose it to put at the very end of the book as a kind of
2: doxology. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. Well, look, man, uh, the book is called God, Nimrod, and the World Exploring Christian Perspectives in Sport Hunting. Um, I've only just scratched the surface on it, and those are the chapters that stood out in my brain that I still need to go back and read. Um, where can people find it? Just online, right? Amazon. I think I bought mine from Amazon. Yeah, you can. It's uh, it's put up by
3: Mercer University Press, and there's sports and a religion series. You can access it through most retailers, but particularly just the easy way to get it is through Amazon. Uh, it's an academic book, but there are chapters in various places that are accessible, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll urge us all if we do glance at it uh, to uh, to come to our own conclusions and not just simply go along with what we've been told, but we'll be reasonable, intentional, and and uh, consistent,
2: whatever it is. But what I like about it is this, is that the thing that we always say in Blood Origins is the thing that's going to save hunting is thinking. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this this book makes you think. Makes you think. And that's all you need to do is you need to think about why you believe what you believe, what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, how do you interact with someone. And to be able to do that, you need to have thought through your position on things. Like, where the bow hunting is the greatest <laughs> hunting endeavor ever, kind of thing. Bracey um, Hill, my man. Um, I don't think this will be the last time we chat, um, because there's so much to explore. And then I think that there's going to be, especially with someone like you now part of this family, when something hits the proverbial ceiling fan in the hunting community around the world, and it's, it's tied to ethics, I think a strong interaction around that is missing in our space and you may be the individual for me to be able to run some hard line ideas or thoughts against i would love to be, a so part if you'd be willing to do that we'd love to have you back my man
3: love to be a part of the conversation
2: thanks bracy well that's it for today i appreciate you listening as always leave a review share it with your friends and most importantly. Do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from
0: 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.